I am pleased to introduce the moderator for this evening, Mr. Warren Olney. Warren Olney is the host and executive producer of Which Way LA and To The Point. Which Way LA is a signature daily local news program on 89.9 KCRW Santa Monica and began in June 1992 in the aftermath of the LA riots. In the fall of 2000, KCRW and Olney took his program to a national audience with To The Point, distributed by Public Radio International, currently airing in Los Angeles, Washington, New York, Seattle, and several other public markets nationwide. At the 2001 Los Angeles Press Club Southern California Journalism Awards, Olney was named Best Radio Journalist of the Year, and Which Way LA was named as Best Talk Public Affairs Show. He's the only person... He's the only person to have twice been named Broadcast Journalist of the Year for his work in both radio and television by the Society of Professional Journalists. He is the recipient of Emmy Awards for reporting and anchoring and Golden Mics for investigative reporting. We're very proud to welcome Mr. Warren Olney. Thank you very much, and thank you, uh, Gregory, and congratulations on uh, Sokolo, uh, which is such a great uh, institution now here in uh, Los Angeles. I've had an opportunity to sit uh, with one of the most interesting people that I've been able to talk with in a very long uh, time, and it would take longer than we have if I were to introduce him uh, properly, I think, for the entire program. So I'm going to skip the awards and the honorariums and, uh, and all of that for the moment, and and start with a little history. Julian Bond's grandfather was born a slave. Two years after he was born, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, and uh, James Bond, as his name was, <laughs> made it to college. His father was an academician, and uh, Julian Bond himself was born in Tennessee. His father was president of a college in Pennsylvania, and he grew up at a Quaker school there, which was obviously an integrated Quaker school. Uh, at about the time he graduated, just before it was time to go to college, the family moved to Atlanta, uh, which he tells me was for him a terrifying experience because of all that he had heard that happens to African Americans in the South. He started at Moorhouse College in 1960, was a co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee which was one of the major, for those of you who are not old enough to know that history, one of the major uh, activist organizations of its day. In 1965, after the reapportionment uh, rulings came down and, uh, and uh, the legislature was redrawn, uh, he ran for the lower house of the legislature in the state of Georgia and won. Uh, and in January of 1966, the assembly of uh, the state of Georgia uh, declined to seat him on the ground that he had endorsed the SNCC position against the war in Vietnam uh, and at the same time had indicated that he thought that people who were trying to evade the draft, weren't burning their draft cards, while he wasn't going to encourage them to do it, uh, were people who should be commended for their courage. Uh, for those reasons, he was not seated in the state uh, legislature. The same year, I believe, very, very quickly after that, uh, he got a nine to nothing decision from the U.S. Supreme Court that his constitutional right to free speech had been denied and he was seated in the Georgia legislature. All of that made him not just a national figure, but an international figure as well. In 1968, at the Chicago Convention, uh, 
Uh, he was nominated to be vice president of the United States, the first time that had ever happened in a major party convention. Uh, and he unfortunately had to decline the honor because the Constitution says you have to be 35, and he wasn't yet 30. <laughs> he then served for 20 years in the legislature in Georgia, which he says he loved to this day, and would go back and do it again if, he only, if only he could do it for two days a week. <laughs> he uh, left that job, uh, which I should say was also intermixed with many other activities, because the, the legislature didn't meet full time. So. Uh, he's been a lecturer, he's been a professor, he's uh, taught uh, since then and, and during his time in the legislature at Harvard University, at American University, at uh, Drexel, at the University of Virginia. He's been a radio and television host uh, and has uh, held many other kinds of positions. In uh, 2000, um, 2008, he became the chair of the NAACP, and that's where I want to start this questioning. Uh, he served as chair until last year. Uh, and what's interesting about that are two things. First of all, he's here tonight and he's in Los Angeles because the NAACP is holding its convention uh, this week. And secondly, because one of the agencies or one of the uh, uh, organizations that, the, that SNCC, uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, was originally very critical of was the NAACP. Said it was it gotten too old, uh, the, uh, it wasn't serving the needs of young African Americans. It wasn't uh, meeting the challenge of the civil rights era uh, as it should have. Why did you go back and become the chair of the NAACP in 2008? Well, when I left the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee shortly thereafter, it collapsed and disappeared. And I was living in Atlanta, I was in the legislature. And I looked around at the civil rights scene, and the NAACP was the only man standing. And it stood for 50 years, from its founding in 1909 until that time. And I thought, gee, what we need is to strengthen this organization that has lasted all these many, many years. And so I, I joined it. I'd, I'd been active in it. I'd been a member of it as a college student, but had gotten away from it when I thought it was too old and too stodgy. And all the people had gray hair, you know. Um, and, and so I, I re-involved myself in it, and I became president of the Atlanta branch, and I got elected to the National Board of Directors. I got in a dispute with the chairman, and I lost my seat on the board of directors. I won that seat back and helped to defeat him, and uh, elected a Californian Merle Evers-Williams to the board of directors of the NAACP, and she served with distinction for a couple of years, and then uh, wanted to step down, and I ran to succeed her in 1998 and served from 1998 until last year, uh, 11 years. And um, it was a wonderful experience and we're so happy to be in Los Angeles. Our CEO, Benjamin Jealous, made a speech this morning in which he made three observations among other. The NAACP membership is up for the third year in a row. Our resources, our finances are in great shape. Our budget balanced for three years in a row. And it's something else he said, which was good news too, I can't remember, just three years in a row, trust me on this. Um, and so the organization is hale and hearty and alive and well, and I'm, I'm proud to be associated with it. What has it meant for the civil rights movement, which you've been involved with, with for your entire life, 
and still are, mm -hmm. as the chair emeritus of the NAACP, to have a black man elected to president of the United States. Well, it means that the work we've been doing since 1909 has been worthwhile. And you know, we were talking together and joked upstairs about the headline in The Onion the day after Obama's election, black man gets worst job in the United States. <laughs> um, but it, it means that the work we've been doing for all these years has paid off. It doesn't mean that work is over. There's more work to be done. But no one can believe that Barack Obama would be president of the United States had it not been for the work the NAACP and many organizations, many groups and individuals, for the work done by these people and these groups over the last several years. Uh, so it was like vindication that all of this labor, all of this effort has been worthwhile and we're happy to be able to do it and see the results of it. You know, he spoke at our convention in 1909. Um, I'm sorry, 19, uh, 1999, our centennial convention, is that right? 2009, thank you. My wife is here in the front row and, and she serves many, many, many wonderful purposes. One of them is correcting me. I, I, I'm glad she did that because I couldn't get it right either. Yeah. Uh, at any, any rate, he, he spoke to our convention in, in 2009. And, uh, you know, we were so happy to see him. He spoke to us as Senator Obama. He spoke to us as um, candidate Obama running for the presidency. He spoke for us as nominee for the Democratic Party. And to have him come to us as president was just a great, great thrill for all of us. Yeah. When he was first running, and even after he was nominated, uh, there were civil rights veterans, members of your and my generation, uh, who seemed to be resentful, uh, particularly because uh, he had not lived what they regarded as the black experience. I think Jesse Jackson was probably the most prominent of those who seemed to be uh, unhappy about him in that respect. Uh, is that important? It's important. I think it's important to note, but it's also important to note that Reverend Jackson became a strong supporter and is a strong supporter today, campaigned vigorously for him, and I'm sure will be campaigning again for him when he announces his formal campaign or when he undertakes his formal campaign for re-election. Um, and many of those people who felt that way, I, I, I felt it, that he, he'd make a wonderful president. I, I had friends in Chicago who kept telling me, we have this great state senator here, he's gonna be president someday, we'd say, oh, sure. Say, and he got to be a U.S. senator, say, he's a U.S. senator now, he's gonna be president, we'd say, oh, sure. And then he began to run and you know, won a couple of primaries, he said, oh, sure. And then he won in Iowa. And that, to me, that was it. I thought, if he can win in this whitest of states, uh, then he can run all the way. He can become president of the United States. And I became a convert then, but I hadn't been a convert before. I didn't not support him because I disliked him in any way. I just didn't think it was possible, and I wasn't going to waste my vote. But I, he proved to me that he could win, and I was happy to support him then. We have an African-American family in the White House. Mm -hmm. African-Americans in the United States are still disproportionately suffering from poverty, ill health, poor schools, all of the other ailments uh, that you have worked so hard to correct and in many ways succeeded in correcting, but not in every way. Uh, 
Is it harder now to argue for affirmative action, to argue for uh, uh, issues, argue issues of that kind? It is a, a little bit harder because there's the feeling in the population that having elected a black man, that these problems have all been solved, they've gone away, and the remedies that solve these problems are no longer needed anymore. Of course, that's false thinking, that's not true. The fact that a black man's in the White House doesn't mean the country has become uh, a wonderful place where everything is happy and everything's fair and equal. Uh, but because many people do believe that, it is harder to argue for these things, but we're gonna argue for them nonetheless. The term racism is, in some respects, in, in some places, a kind of punchline. Mm -hmm. There's an NBC program where, uh, I, I don't know the name of the program, but where somebody asks, how do you do the laundry? And somebody says, well, you separate the dark from the light. And the punchline is, well, that's racist. Mm -hmm. And NPR uh, took note of this recently and did a, a, a story about it. What, what's the significance of that? What, that, that, they, that there's a younger generation that finds that the word racism uh, is, the, is, a, is a punchline in a popular program. I'm not really sure what it means. I, I, I think I heard the NPR story and I read something else about it, but I'm not sure what does it mean. Does it mean that if someone says something that is uncomfortable to you or funny to you, whether it involves race or not, that you can say racism and you've made a joke? Uh, if it is, I, I don't get the joke. Um, racism exists in the country. It isn't in mixing clothes of different colors together. Nobody believes that to be so. Um, so I'm not sure what the significance of that is. I do think young people are free of many of the bigotries and prejudices that we older people have had, have learned over the years and cannot forget many of us. Um, I do think that the generation of young people I teach college students is much more free or much freer about their associations, their friends, um, the things they do, the things they think than, than I was in my time. But I don't think we've reached nirvana, far from it. We have a lot more to do and we have to do it. We have to buckle down and do it. There are those who argue that the reason that it's a good joke is that black people have uh, advanced to such a point that they're now occupying the White House and we don't have to worry about that anymore. Yes, but I, I don't, I, if it's a b big joke, it's not funny to me. And I don't think it's unfunny to me, it just doesn't make me laugh. It's, I don't get it. And maybe I'm dense. And you know, I, I was a host of Saturday Night Live, so I know a joke when I see it. <laughs> um, so, but, but this is not a joke to me. I'm not saying it's a, an evil statement, but it, I don't get it. Who did you host Saturday Night Live with? Um, well, let me see, the entertainment was uh, a same group called Brick from Atlanta. And this guy... Um, Wasn't Garrett Morris? Uh, Garrett Morris was there. Yeah. Uh, all of the original cast except uh, Chevy Chase, he had left the show, and Bill Murray, who had, had replaced him. So all the original cast. What was the best line you had? <laughs> <laughs> This is what's called a setup in the comedy <laughs> business. We did a skit called Black Perspectives in the News, and Garrett Morris was the host of this show and I was the guest. And the premise was that Garrett Morris was saying that um, IQ tests have been around for a long time and still blacks score poorly on these tests. 
And I went through a number of nonsensical explanations of why this is true, saying that the tests were biased. For example, I said, here's a test. Uh, you're going skiing in Gestad. Are you going to use number three wax? And you know, obviously that's biased and you can't be expected to know that. And he said, no, no, no. He said, these tests have been around for a long, long time and most of them are not like that. So why is it that black people do so poorly on these tests? And I said, that's because light-skinned blacks are smarter than dark-skinned blacks. And he is darker skinned than I am. And he did this marvelous double taker. He said, say what? <laughs> and I said, everybody knows it. Light-skinned blacks are smarter than dark-skinned blacks. And he said, I see we've run out of time. And, <laughs> and the audience thought it was just as funny as you do. So that was a long time ago. You're still milking these lines. Yes, I am. <laughs> Not bad. Um, what about race politics, identity politics uh, in the United States? Uh, are they still with us? What does that mean, identity politics? You know, why don't we think about the Tea Party as identity politics? This is an almost yes. all-white phenomenon. This is an almost all-white phenomenon. There are black people in the Tea Party. You know, the, the south-central Los Angeles picketed Tea Party picketed the NAACP yesterday, but it looked more like Orange County to me than South Central. There were about 100 people there and 75 of them were white. Uh, so when we say identity politics, do we ever think about the Tea Party or the moral majority? I mean, this was an overwhelmingly white political phenomenon and nobody accuses them of paying identity politics. Why is it only people of color who are condemned in this way? Why is it? I think it's because for so, some people find it objective when people of color band together in their own interest. And somehow that's thought to be hostile to the American dream, hostile to the American way. But they don't think the same thing about white people pulling, coming together for their own interest. And I think that's because they don't think white people can do anything wrong in that regard. Tell me about uh, President Obama. There was a story done about him in the uh, uh, New York Times. Well, I, th I think he was the nominee, or maybe he was still running against uh, Hillary Clinton, I forget. Um, but a lot, there were a lot of interviews with uh, uh, people who had been involved in the civil rights movement and, and others who were younger uh, who were holding office. Uh, mm -hmm. I think Mary Nutter of Philadelphia was one and, and uh, other African-American office holders. And, and the question was, uh, do we have to vote for this guy just because he's black? Do we have to support him just because he's black? What do you think about that? Herman Cain went to my college. <laughs> Herman Cain is a black man. I'm not going to vote for Herman Cain. <laughs> One of the questions in that article was the, how uh, that were he to be elected, uh, Barack Obama would have to be not only the President of the United States, but also the de facto leader of black America. Has he done a good job of both of those things? Is he both of those things? No, I, I, and I think the expectation that he would be both those things was a wrong expectation. Uh, to think that he would be President of the United States and President of black America was too much. I don't think there is a President of black America. And if there is, his name is not Barack Obama. Um, I think he has been a good president. If he didn't have this 
pack of objectors shouting no at him, he would have been a better president and a more successful president. And I'm fairly sure, I'm fairly sure that his second term will be even more successful than the first. People accuse him of leading from behind. Uh, does that mean anything to you? Yes, I, I don't think it's true. It means, you know, waiting too long or until the decision has been made and then trying to unmake it or do something else. I don't think that's true. I think he faces an unusual amount of hostility from the other party, of hostility from Americans who, uh, many of whom are motivated by the fact that he's pres acting for, at, like president while black. And uh, the hostility against him is just, I've never seen anything like this. I've gone through president after president after president after president. I've never seen anything like this. I doubt you never have either. I'm older than you are. And I've, I doubt no, you haven't not. seen it. I'm older than you are. Okay, have you seen anything like this in your lifetime? No. Yeah. Do you think it's because of racism? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. What else is it? Is it because he's from Chicago? Is it because he's tall and thin? No, it's because he's black. Now, I think there are people who object to his politics because they are philosophically opposed to them. That they believe he shouldn't do this, he shouldn't do that, he shouldn't do this, because they have some philosophical argument against him. But I believe there's an enormous number of people who would not like him if he uh, gave each of them $1,000. He still wouldn't be their president. He still wouldn't be president for them. I prepared some questions, but I can't see them in the uh, light up here. Uh, but I want to uh, I want to I want to go from where you uh, just left off. Um, what about his uh, his attention to the kinds of issues that you have spent your life uh, trying to advocate? Uh, has he disappointed you in any way? Yes, he disappointed me, and I have to say he will not be the first president to do that. And I don't think he's gonna be the last president to do that. Um, I've wanted him to pay much more attention to this, that, and the other thing. When he didn't, and I was disappointed, and want him to do more, and I'm not you know, sure that in his second term he'll pay as much attention to these things as I want him to. I wanted more attention paid to this appalling rate of black unemployment. You know, black unemployment is always twice the rate of whites. If unemployment for whites is 5%, it's 10% for black people. That's a, a norm. That happens all the time in the United States, no matter what the economy is like. Uh, but these uh, staggering rates of unemployment are just wreaking havoc on black America. And I don't think he's paid enough attention to that, and I'd like him to pay more. But I'm not gonna throw him out the window because of this, or say I'll never vote for you again, or I hate you, Barack Obama. You're a bad guy, because I, I don't think those things are true. Do you think he's shying away from those kinds of issues because he's the first I, black I president no. and because of all of this racism no, that you're talking no, about earlier? No, I don't think that. I do think he doesn't want to be perceived as the black president, and I can understand why. I think if I were in his position, I wouldn't want to be perceived as the black president too, because I'd want people to say, you're the president of the United States of all the people here, and that's how we think of you, and I think that's how he wants to be thought of. So if he can stop being the black president, he's going to do it, or being thought of as the black president. Doesn't mean he shouldn't do black things, or support black causes, or do things that he thinks are in the interest of black people, but he doesn't want to be the black president. Let me go back to your time in Georgia, uh, the, uh, with, in the legislature there, 20 years. Mm. How long was it before you felt you weren't any longer being considered as the black 
representative and the the leftist, the uh, unpatriotic opponent of the Vietnam War. For some people, this never happened. I was always thought that way. But for most people, you know, politicians are very rational. And if everybody in, in this front, these front rows were voting on something and they had to get a majority and the people on this side voted one way and the people on this side voted another, and if these people could get one of these people to come over to them, they'd do it and they'd be nice to the person and they'd be nice to my wife, for example, who's very personable here, second person in, and they'd talk to her and they might promise her things uh, that she'd like. I don't mean bribes. You know, just that when she had an argument to make that they'd be on her side, uh, then they'd do, and that happened to me. When it became clear to my colleagues in the House first, where I served first, that I was a vote. Among other things, I was a vote. And my vote could be for them or against them. Then they began to pay attention to me, they wooed me, and asked me to vote for them, and if it was something I could do, I was happy to do it. I, in turn, asked them to vote for me, and if it was something they could do, they'd do it for me. So I'd say about two years. When you were first elected, uh, there were eight of you, as I remember, all yeah. elected at the same time, who were African-Americans. Right. Uh, you were the only one that was not seated. Mm -hmm. Why was that? What happened to Well, those? about uh, a week before I was elected, I was to be seated, a young man named Sammy Young, who worked for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee for whom I worked, was shot in the back in Tuskegee, Alabama. Sammy had been in the Navy. He had lost a kidney in the Navy. He had to go to the bathroom more than most people. He's walking away from a demonstration in downtown Tuskegee where he lived. He comes to a gas station. He wants to go to the bathroom. And, he tr and as he tries to do that, the owner of the gas station shot him in the back and killed him. And the irony of this guy losing his life in service to his country when he's given his kidney in service to his country was too much. And we issued an anti-war statement which at the time sounded aggressive and militant, but today would sound like things people are saying about the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, uh, you know, just normal things. Uh, wouldn't sound bad at all. But then I think it sounded radical to my colleagues to be, and they objected to my being seated and they filed a challenge against me. And they held a trial on the floor of the house and they voted 160-odd to 12 to throw me out. The 12 were my, my black colleagues. And they threw me out. I appealed this to a three-judge federal court. Um, the two judges appointed by uh, President Kennedy voted against me. The judge appointed by President Eisenhower voted for me. Um, we appealed that to the uh, United States Supreme Court. And I went to the court to hear the argument. And I was sitting in the, in the court uh, just behind the bar with the lawyers in front of me, and I was sitting next to my lawyer's partner, uh, Victor Rabinowitz, and the Attorney General of Georgia was making an argument that Georgia had a right to throw me out because I had said things that were treasonous and seditious. And I think it was Judge White, Wizard White, said to him, he said, is this all you have? He said, you come, you come all the way up here and this is all you have? So I said to Rabinowitz, I said, we're winning, aren't we? <laughs> and he said, yes, you are. And yes, we did. And we won nine to zip. It carried the day. And I was seated uh, the following year. How do you feel about the current Supreme Court? Oh, they're awful. Well, they're not all, they're not all awful, but the majority is, is really awful. Um, if you, I can't quote this exactly, so I hope you'll understand. You read the decision in the Walmart case. Um, Justice 
Speak up a little loud, honey. Scalia. 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 Justice Scalia, thanks. Justice Scalia writes that businesses always hire the very best people. There's no reason they wouldn't hire the very best people. Why would we think they would hire very best people? Therefore, the argument the other people are making is nonsense. Well, if you have that kind of reasoning, you know, how can you expect anything but garbage to come out? And garbage came out in this time, and garbage has come out in some other decisions they've made. So it's a, you know, it's, it's a bad, bad court. They're going to be there for a long time. Yes, they are. They are. Unless someone intervenes. Someone from, <laughs> You're not talking about the student nonviolent coordinating. No, 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 no. no we're, we're gone. We're, we're all gone. What happened to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee? Uh, it became a very different kind of organization after you uh, co-founded it, and uh, nonviolence was uh, ultimately not really its principal organizing uh, concept. Well, I, it's wrong to say I co-founded it. I was a founder among a large group of people, so co-founded sounds like two or three people did it, but it was mm. more than that. Um, it continued along for a number of years, and it began to internally question the wisdom of nonviolence. And uh, some members began carrying weapons. I mean, people were shooting at us and we wanted to be able to shoot back at them. Um, the situation uh, seemed uh, more and more dire in the South where we were fighting. And we were fighting in some of the rough tumble places in the South. And it just seemed like a normal thing to do to uh, have a weapon for your, for your own self-defense. I mean, it's, a, it's the American way. Um, it may not be the, the American way we like, but it is the American way. And uh, I'd left before this period really, really blossomed in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but it seemed to me perfectly rational for my colleagues to say, if someone's going to shoot at me, I want to be able to shoot back at them. So is that still true? Uh, uh, people say that they ought to have the right to defend themselves in their homes. There's uh, uh, more and more opposition to gun control uh, laws. Is that, sent? Is, that, is, that a, is that a good thing? Is it no, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. Uh, but it is a good thing to say, I can have a weapon in my home. And until I moved up to Washington, I, I had a weapon in my home. I always had a weapon in my home. I had a big shotgun. Uh, I had threats all my life, and I wasn't going to have my family unprotected. I wanted them to be able to protect them if, if I got the opportunity. Uh, when I moved to Washington, where these things never happen, uh, <laughs> I couldn't take my gun with me. Um, and so I, I left it at home, left it in Atlanta. Talk about those days in, in Atlanta, the early days of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the kind of courage that it took to sit in at lunch counters to uh, uh, do some of the other uh, things that were at the time um, regarded as so threatening to the majority of the society? Well, I'm not sure if it took a tremendous amount of courage to sit at the lunch counter. Uh, the chances of some harm being done to you were um, not slight, but not sure. Um, I sat in first in 1960. I led a group of students from uh, the Atlanta University Center to City Hall in Atlanta, uh, and in City Hall in Atlanta had a cafeteria in the basement, and I led them into this cafeteria, and they had a, a steam tables like they do in many cafeterias, and black women dishing up the food, and we 
went on through there. And you could see these women were looking at us with a mixture of fear and admiration. Fear because they knew what we were doing. A sit this was a sit-in, and a sit-in meant police were coming, and that was frightening to them. And admiration because they'd seen this happening in other parts of the South, Upper South, and they were happy it was happening in Atlanta. And I made my way to the front of the line. I was the leader of this group. And there's a white woman sitting there at the cash register, and she said, I'm awfully sorry, this is for City Hall employees only. I said, you have a big sign out front that says City Hall cafeteria, the public is welcome. She said, we don't mean it. I said, <laughs> I said well, we'll stand here until you do. And she called the police, and the police came and arrested me, arrested us, rather, and took us to jail, separated us by sex, and I found myself in a large bullpen, almost as big as half of this room, uh, with these other men who had been arrested for heaven knows what, and I didn't want to ask a single one of them, why are you here, my good man? Um, but they knew why we were there, and they were happy to see us, and, and, and praiseworthy of what we had done, and, and clapping us on the back and saying, you know, way to go, good for you. Um, and because so many people had been arrested in other parts of Atlanta that day, they decided to choose one person for each arrest site, and I was chosen to be tried for mine, and I found myself in this courtroom, and I found myself standing between two men, uh, an older man and a younger man. Uh, I found out these are my lawyers, men I'd never seen before. And uh, there's some back and forth between the judge and my lawyers, which I really didn't understand. And the judge turned to me and he said, how do you plead? Well, I was really nervous about this question because on the one hand, a policeman had asked me to move and I'd refused to move. And so I thought I was guilty of something. On the other hand, I didn't think he had a right to ask me. This was a tax-supported cafeteria. I was a taxpayer. I had a right to be there and I had a right to eat there. And so I didn't know what the right answer to this was. So I turned to the lawyer on my left, who was the senior of the two. He was Colonel A.T. Walden. He was a heroic figure. He had spent his, I'd say, 60, 70 years defending black people in small towns in, in Georgia where he could not spend the night. And just a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, and he was asleep. He was like this. <laughs> and I looked to my right, where the younger of the two men was. He was the protege of the older man. And he said to me in a stage whisper, he said, not guilty, you fool. <laughs> and and I, I, had the wit, I had the wit to drop those last two words. <laughs> or or I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sitting here now. <laughs> when you were jailed, were there white inmates as well? No, no, the jail was segregated. Segregated jail. There were white inmates in the building, but not, not in our cell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, t you uh, took a course, I believe, at Morehouse from Dr. Martin Luther King. Yes, and you know, when uh, one of us said Morehouse College earlier, I heard a little ripple in the crowd, because you know, you can always tell a Morehouse man. <laughs> what, say that? You can't tell him much. I told you tonight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. I, I took a course from, that was taught by Dr. King, and it was the only course Dr. King ever taught. Uh, it was a course he co-taught at Morehouse College, his alma mater. The course was co-taught with Dr. King and the man who had taught him philosophy when he was a Morehouse student. And um, I'm very proud of this because there were eight people in the class, two women from Spelman College and six men from Morehouse College. And we are the only eight people in the world who can honestly say we were students of Martin Luther King because it's the only time he ever taught. Now there are other people, I'm sure some in Los Angeles, who will say I was a student of Dr. King. But unless they went to Morehouse College or Spelman College 
unless they took this class. They're not telling the truth. So if you hear them say it, you should call them on it. <laughs> um, but he, he co-taught this philosophy class with, with a man named Samuel Williams. And I guess Reverend Williams probably knew more philosophy than Dr. King did. This was his business. Uh, Dr. King was a philosophy student, but only a student. But I remember one day, King was reading, was answering a question about somebody, Plato, Aristotle, or somebody, and he was looking at the textbook, and the other professor, Dr. Williams, would read from the textbook, and we would follow along. You know. King would recite from the textbook. He'd put his head back and he'd say, and Plato says, and we'd follow along. It was amazing, he had a not a total recall, but he had a wonderful recall, a wonderful memory, he could remember so much. Um, so this was a great experience. He must not have been much older than you were. No, he would have been uh, in his maybe 30 then, and I would have been uh, 22 or three, yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Close enough. Yes. <clears throat> what, um, what do you think was the contribution of Martin Luther King to... Uh, to the United States? Well, among many other things, I think he was one of the rare figures of the time who was able to speak in a single voice to both black and white Americans, and to Southerners, particularly in the common Christianity of Southerners, and to couch his message in this message of Christian love and redemption, uh, which struck a chord with Southerners uh, in a way I don't think it struck a chord with everybody in the country, but struck a chord with Southerners. And he was able in that way to engage these people, uh, even against their will, in, in the movement for civil rights, uh, some willingly, but some hesitantly. Uh, and that was his gift, this wonderful art, gift for oratory, and this wonderful way of putting things in, into words that made it palatable to people for whom it could not be palatable, is said in some other way. He just had a real gift for that. What'd you learn in the course? I can't remember a thing. And, <laughs> and one of my classmates is the Reverend uh, Amos Brown, who has a big church in San Francisco. And I've asked Amos what he remembers from the class. And Amos has told me he can't remember anything either. <laughs> and so I don't feel quite badly about it. <laughs> but you were there. I was there. Mm. I, have you... the, I have the class roll, so I can prove I was there. You still have it. Well, I got a copy of it from Amos. Do you have other heroes? Do you have any that are still alive? Well, Dr. King would be a hero of mine. I generally tend to focus on, on heroes who are not alive because I think the live ones uh, disappoint you. You know, when I was in the legislature, <laughs> when, I, when I was in the legislature, and I know they do this in the Los Angeles City Council, they do this in the California State Legislature, they're always naming buildings and high, and high schools and highways after somebody. And I was dead set against naming things about uh, after people who are alive. You should let the person be dead for 10 or 20 years until this happens. Uh, but I, I never could win an argument of this kind. Um, but anyway, I can't remember what point I was trying to make here. Well, the question was, do you oh, have hero, any heroes hero. other My than Other that? heroes, yes. Uh, two heroes particularly. One is W.E.B. Du Bois. And I, luckily, I have a photograph of myself, my father, my sister, 
E. Franklin Frazier, the three men dressed in academic regalia, and my sister, I'm three, and my sister is four, standing in front of Dr. Du Bois, and an accompanying uh, certificate, which was typed by my mother, dedicating us to a life of scholarship, and my sister to a life of producing scholars. <laughs> and sign, signed by all three of these men. And it's a precious thing to have, a very precious thing to have. And the other would be Frederick Douglass, who is a great, I'm a great, great fan of Frederick Douglass. I used to be able, to, I've always been hoping that somebody will invite me to give a 4th of July speech. Because if they did, I would recite Douglass's 4th of July speech. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer it as a day that reveals to him all the days of the year, more than all the other days of the year, the constant injustice to which he is constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, a thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Go where you may, search where we you will, go through all the crowned heads of Europe, and you will never find, and I can't remember the last of it, but it's wonderful, look it up on, it's on the internet. It's one of the masterpieces, it's one of the masterpieces of American oratory, and if you think Dr. King gave some wonderful speeches, read this Frederick Douglass speech, What to the American Slave is the Fourth of July. It's a wonderful, wonderful speech. You once said, or recently said in a speech, if you don't like gay marriage, don't get gay married. <laughs> you know, at the, at the NAACP today, this afternoon, uh, for two hours, we had the third... Um, meeting of a task force that I set up three years ago um, on GLBT issues. Uh, Don Lemon, the CNN um, newscaster who has just come out, was the moderator. Uh, Wanda Sykes, whom all of you know and love, uh, was a panelist, and several other people were, uh, were panelists. And it was, I think we are the only civil rights organization to have done this. Well, there's no reason why the other couldn't and shouldn't. And uh, it just struck me that, you know, black Americans tend to be extremely con conservative about these kinds of issues. Um, and some of it, I think, is a biblically based um, ignorance. And it can only be ignorance because, you know, they say Leviticus says, thou shalt not lie with a man as thou lies with a woman. And they say, well, I believe that that's a, a prohibition against homosexuality. But Leviticus also says, thou shalt not wear clothes of a different cloth. And if you go in most pulpits and look at the minister's clothes, they'll be that silk shirt, that wool jacket, and those cotton pants. Shouldn't that man be burned in hell? <laughs> Shouldn't, it? anyway, so you know, it just strikes me that if, if, you, if your Bible tells you not to uh, let people, same-sex couples marry in church, uh, then don't let them get married in your church. They'll find another decent church that will allow them to marry, or they'll go to City Hall, which is okay. You, you boycotted the funeral, if this is, that's boycott's the right term, you didn't go to the funeral of... Uh, Coretta Scott King because it was held in a church which didn't accept a, a gays and you said that that was because she would have 
objected to that. Uh, did you take a lot of heat for that? No, almost no heat. Mrs. King, and I don't think many people know this, Mrs. King was a strong supporter of gay rights. She was a strong supporter of same-sex marriage. Um, and she spoke about this. She traveled around the country going to places where she could find an audience to talk about this. And the idea that she would be buried from this church, pastored by Reverend Eddie Long, was just abhorrent to me. And so I, she was my next door neighbor when I lived in Atlanta, but uh, I, didn't, I couldn't go to her, her, her funeral in that church, and so I didn't go. But no, I didn't, uh, I didn't get any uh, flack from that. Um, nobody about whom I cared said anything about it. Do you think that that uh, antipathy toward gay people is changing in the black oh, community? Oh, I know it's changing. It's not changing fast enough, but I know it's changing. And, you know, if, and this is hard for somebody who's straight to say, if more black people would come out, if you had in, a, in black churches, say, a coming out day, and you get people to say, stand up in church, because in many churches, black churches, there's a time when you can stand up and say something, and you get people to stand up and say, I'm gay, you know me. I've been here for 20 years. I've sat next to you. I've been to church parties. I've been all over the church with you. I'm gay and I want you to know it and I'm going to be here tomorrow, next week and I want you to know that and look forward to seeing me. That's hard for me to say that because you know, it's not, nothing I have to do. But I think if more gay people would do that, it would ease the situation a great, great deal. And the enmity would begin to diminish. Yeah. I've had a lot of fun asking these questions. I think it's time... Uh, to give the audience a shot. Prior to Iowa, you didn't think that uh, President Obama would be elected president. Was that because you didn't think at the time America was ready to uh, embrace a black president, or was it for other reasons? And whatever the reasons, did something, do you think, change uh, 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 that caused the, uh, what was it that changed? It was the former reason. Okay. I didn't think America was ready to vote for a black man for president. I had seen the uh, Jesse Jackson campaigns, um, and you, you know what happened with them. And, and when I saw him win convincingly in Iowa, this overwhelmingly white state, I thought to myself, perhaps this is possible. You know, there's not a guarantee that he's going to win, but to win in Iowa was a, was a real affirmation for me, and I toppled away from being, um, you know, wanting him to win, but not wanting to give him any money and not wanting to vote for him because it would be a wasted vote. And all of a sudden it became possible for me. I work with people that are HIV positive. Can you talk about any of your experiences or knowledge about African Americans and HIV? I can talk mostly about the NAACP because beginning about four years ago at each of the NAACP conventions where we have roughly 5,000 people here this week from all around the country, we provided HIV testing. And I kicked it off of four years ago with our then CEO um, and our then vice chair, who's now our chair. And uh, we you know, had on the spot free testing and the kind of testing that you could tell, you didn't have to wait weeks and months, you could tell in, in, a, in a minute or two, maybe not a minute, but pretty quickly uh, what the result was. And we've run campaigns in our branches and we have a branch in almost every state in the union and in most, most states, many, many branches, um, 
urging people to become tested. Uh, we've um, done all we can to spread information about HIV and to familiarize our constituency particularly uh, with this disease and what they can do to avoid it and how they can react to it if they find they've contracted it and what they can do about it. So that's what we've done. Uh, but it's a, it's a horrible, horrible, you know, the greatest rate of infection is among black gay men and black women. Black women. And that's, those are frightening, frightening facts. I assume that when you heard about, frankly, when we all saw Barack Obama win the election in 2008, you had certain expectations about the resistance he would encounter in his role as the first African-American president. Now that we're three years into his um, first term, and in a particularly contentious period in terms of Congress and the administration, are you more or less hopeful for, I guess, the future of um, race relations in this country? And has it unveiled any latent uh, racism that you might have not been expecting? And I, I tried to be careful in what I said about him earlier. I don't think everybody who's opposed to Barack Obama is a racist. I don't think that, and I hope I've never said that. But I do think much of the opposition to him is based on race. And I have to say, I'm an optimist myself, but I was, un, uh, I was unable to anticipate the intensity and the level of opposition to him as we've seen over the last three years. I was just, I've been shocked almost daily by the capacity of the Republican Party to say no. Um, the willingness they have to plunge the country into, into disaster. The fact that they don't seem to care about this. Their utter disregard for the future of all of us and what's gonna to happen to all of us. I just, I, I was naive about that and uh, probably optimistic to a fault. I don't wanna lose my optimism, I think it's a healthy trait, but they tire, they test me severely. Much of the opposition to him is racist. Yeah. Are the Republicans exploiting that? Oh, sure, absolutely. Of course they are. They, they know this is profitable for them. They've done this for years and years and years. Um, you see this surge of voter ID laws across the country. These are deliberate attempts to tighten the noose around the ballot box. This is Jim Crow in a new form. Uh, the fact that many of these... ID, these IDs are only available for a price. This is a poll tax. We did away with poll taxes in this country years and years ago. And to reinstitute another is the very height of, of bigotry and racism because that's all it is. So sure they're doing it. The Republicans love this. This is a part of the Republican playbook. Uh, what's the guy, the guy from South Carolina? There's a new book about him out right now. No, not Jim DeMint, he's dead. The guy I'm thinking about is dead, the political organizer. Republican political organizer, Republican guy. Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater. New book about him out right now. And he, he is the father of some, of some of this or most of this. But, you know, it's like uh, many, many people are, are the fathers of this. When you look back on your SNCC career, what do you now know about efforts by the government to plant spies, agent provocateurs, have you learned a lot? Are you surprised by what happened? We were always, uh, you know, right on the edge of paranoia. But, you know, even paranoids have enemies. 
And we had always believed, Andy Young used to say that the, um, our offices, our recording studios, and Jagger Hoover is the engineer. Um, so we always suspected that we were li being listened to and that information that we intended to be secret was made public, or at least was exposed to government forces uh, beyond our back. And in the days since then, as you've, uh, we've been able to access through freedom of information reports, uh, access to government, both state and federal, then it's clear that that's what was happening. There's no doubt this was happening. We were spied upon, we were listened to, we were illegally wiretapped, we were treated as if we were in a recording studio, and J. Edgar Hoover was the engineer. You bring up Dr. King, and uh, as we think about Dr. King and the civil rights movement, uh, we realized that he was killed at a time when he was directing his message more about uh, socioeconomic equality. And I'd like to find out what your uh, ideas are on what are the biggest uh, obstacles in the way of socioeconomic equality, and what should we be doing now? I don't know if you see the New York Times this past Sunday or Saturday, Charles Blow, who has that weekly feature, uh, some kind of statistical chart proving some point, uh, had a page, or most of a page, dedicated to the proposition that Republicans have experienced the greatest gains in their membership among white, low-income whites. So the people most likely to be hurt by Republican policies are most attracted to the Republican Party. Well, this is scary. This is truly scary. There's a book a couple of years ago called What's the Matter with Kansas? And it asked the question of why people in Kansas kept voting for things that were designed to hurt them. And I didn't read the book, so I don't know what the answer to that question is. <laughs> but I wish I had because, you know, it doesn't make why so many people always willing to vote against policies that harm them, that are des designed to harm them. Well, that's what we see happening now, and if it continues on this way, um, and if they succeed, and I don't believe they'll succeed, but if they succeed, it just means the country will deteriorate, will fall apart. Hi, I'm Claudia Bester. I want to first say it's just an honor to have you here. I've been a fan of having been raised by lots of SNCs. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, I've heard recently about an internal disagreement within the NAACP, and there's groups that, are, that wanted to open up and represent all people of color, and other groups that want to keep it mostly about black issues. And I was wondering if you have a position on that. Well, no, I haven't, I'm not aware of any disputes in the NAACP between people who want us to differ from our, our, our mission. Our mission has always been to fight discrimination. The NAACP was founded to combat racial discrimination and discrimination against people of color. But we have, over these 102 years we've been in existence, we have defended anyone who was the victim of discrimination, no matter their race or their color. Or no matter their condition or concern. So I'm, I'm not aware of any attempt to say, let's only focus on these people or let's not focus on those people. Um, six years ago, we reinforced that we were going to fight for equality of people regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation, and on down a long list of concerns. So that's six year, just six years ago, but that has always been, not always, but almost always been our, our course of action. 
I was fascinated by your involvement in the film The Art of the Steel and the involvement with Moorehouse College. And if no one has seen it, it's about the privatization of the art sector. It's a very interesting hidden story to the right-wingization of the country. And I'm wondering how you got involved in that, if you could say something about it. It's not that. Morehouse College. It's Lincoln University. Oh, it's Lincoln. But I thought your father... My remember. father was president of Lincoln University. Okay, sorry. This is a long story, but it's a wonderful story, I'll tell you. Have you ever seen Art of the Steel? Wonderful movie. My father was president of Lincoln University, Pennsylvania. And as president, part of his job was going to funerals of prominent alumni. And a prominent Lincoln man had died in Philadelphia. My father went to the funeral, and as he was standing in the front of the church getting ready to go up in the pulpit, he was approached by this tall white man who said, I hope you're not one of those goddamn Negro preachers. My father said, no, I'm a college president. The white man said, good, because they talk too much. They go up in the pulpit, and somebody is eulogizing the dead man and begins to say that the dead man had vaguely socialist policies. And the white man... The tall white man is saying to my father's dismay in a voice loud enough to be heard in the church, goddamn lie, goddamn lie, goddamn lie. Well, my father discovered this is the eccentric millionaire Albert Barnes. And as a college president, it's his job to befriend him. So he would give some money to Lincoln University. So they chit-chat after the funeral and Dr. Barnes asked my father if he'd like to drive out to Laura Marion to see his art collection. And my father says, yes. Dr. Barnes says, I want to warn you, it'll be cheese and crackers. My father thinks, this is the eccentric millionaire. So they drive out to Lower Marion, my father following Dr. Barnes. They arrive at his mansion, and the mansion next to it where the art is housed. They go through three dining rooms and finally settle on one where the meal is cheese and crackers. <laughs> and Dr. Barnes and my father begin a friendship and a relationship. And Dr. Barnes began admitting students to Lincoln students to study at his art collection because Dr. Barnes viewed this art collection not as a museum but as a school where art students would learn from these enormously uh, important works of French Impressionist art how to paint. Um, this is the largest collection of French Impressionist art anywhere in the world. Not just outside of France, anywhere in the world. I believe it's been estimated at about six billion dollars worth of art. Well, Dr. Barnes died before his time. He was quite elderly, but he was in an automobile accident and died. And he had changed his will so that as the trustees he named to his trust that controlled the, the art died off, Lincoln University would get to name replacements. And sometime in the 1970s, Lincoln achieved a majority on the board. And I don't think, and I'm sorry to say this because I grew up at Lincoln and I love Lincoln University, I don't think Lincoln knew what it had or knew what to do, deal with it. It tried to fight off attempts by the Pew Foundation, the Lenfirst Foundation, and the Annenberg Foundation to take control of the art. They maneuvered and got Lincoln to appoint extra trustees and achieved a majority on the board and eventually wrested control of the art from Lincoln University. Lincoln tried to fight back, but this little tiny black college in Pennsylvania could do nothing against the Pew Foundation, the Annenberg Foundation, and the Lindfirst Foundation. This is big money. We're talking big money here. There's nothing they could do about it. So these people ineffectively stole the art. That's why the documentary is called The Art of the Steel. Um, and the art, the steel, art of the steel is almost complete.
I, there's a hearing going to be next week, I think, in Philadelphia before Judge Ott, who's the same judge who's delivered some awful, awful rulings in this case, um, over a sort of a last-ditch appeal filed by the students. Because Lincoln University tried to sue against this happening, but Lincoln couldn't match lawyer for lawyer with these people um, and just couldn't do it. And besides, Governor Rendell, who used to be Mayor Rendell of Philadelphia, put $50 million in the budget for Lincoln University. Well, $50 million is a lot of money to a little tiny college like Lincoln, and they eventually gave up the fight. Now, this last, and this is really the last ditch effort to try to stop this, and most people don't believe it's gonna be successful. And so it's heartbreaking, because to see this art in its original location was something magical. You know, the, the value of private art collections is that they reflect the owner's or the founder's taste. And he or she thought it ought to look this way. And when you go to see the art, you say, well, that's the way Joe or Mr. Johnson or Mr. whomever wanted it to look. This is the way Albert Barnes wanted it to look. Albert Barnes was a peculiar man. He used to, if you would write him a letter and say, I'm the art critic from the New York Times, I'd like to come see your art, he'd send you a letter saying no and he'd have his dog sign it. <laughs> if, you said, if you said, I'm a steel worker from Pittsburgh, I'd like to see the art, he'd say, come on, brother. I'm glad to have you. He liked working people. He liked black people. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. My mother told me, uh, because I never got to talk to my father about him, my mother told me that he had come to visit my father once, and my sister and I were making some noise, and, my and Albert Barnes said, what's that goddamn noise? And my mother said, that's my children. And Dr. Barnes said, tell them to shut up. <laughs> and my mother told us to shut up. So that's how, that's how Lincoln and I got involved in this fight. Any comments related to the UNIA and Marcus Garvey, which is also an organization that existed to defend the rights of uh, black people in the United States? And just wanted to know if you had any comments related to it. Yeah, well, I, t I teach civil rights history, and I begin in the beginning of the 20th century, and you cannot teach uh, civil rights history without mentioning Marcus Garvey and the UNIA. The UNIA stood for the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Marcus Garvey started this organization. He was a Jamaican, came to the United States, started this organization, and at one time it was the largest organization of people of color in the whole United States. And interestingly enough, um, Malcolm X's father was in the UNIA, and of all his children, Malcolm was the only one he took to UNIA meetings. Shirley Chisholm's mother was in the UNIA, uh, and Malcolm's mother wrote for the UNIA paper. So you can face, face this, tread, this, this thread of nationalism, black nationalism, from Marcus Garvey to Malcolm X's parents to Malcolm X. And even today, there are remnants of, of this school of thought alive in black America today. And so I teach about Marcus Garvey. I teach about the UNIA. I think he's largely a forgotten figure, which is a shame because he was a powerful figure. He uh, said, up you mighty race, you have nothing to lose but your chains. He was a, apparently a wonderful orator, a, a great crowd stirrer, uh, a magical man. But of course, he was before my time, I never saw him or met him. I wanted to ask you about, since you were talking about the arts, what your feelings are about art and music and education for children. It seems to me 
that children today in, in our public schools are shortchanged on the art they receive, the instruction in art they receive, the music instruction they receive, uh, and the opportunities they have to understand the world's great music, or even the music of their own times, uh, is, is slim or narrow. Um, I happen to work on a project, which I didn't follow through on, involving Motown, with uh, one of the, uh, what's her name? She's on the city, city council in, Chicago, in Detroit now. Um, Martha Reeves, Martha Reeves. Thank you so much. It wasn't for these two. But, yes, wasn't for these two, I wouldn't be able to talk. Uh, Martha Reeves of the Vandellas, you know, um, told me, heat wave, yes, heat wave. Um, described to me her music education in the Detroit public schools and the education that enables so much music to come out of Detroit because they had this music education in the public schools that equipped children to play instruments and to learn harmony and to learn how to read music and to write music and to do things that children someplace else never learned how to do. So that kind of thing is missing in America today and it's a tragedy for all of us. And I think it's gonna be many, many years before we're able to recapture it or regain it, to much to our great sorrow. Here's my question, it's about a fellow Georgian uh, President Carter, and could you give us some impressions, if you would, about your relationship with him when you served uh, in the legislature? I think you were probably in different houses at the time, and then his governorship, and your overall assessment of Jimmy Carter. When Jimmy Carter became governor, I was in the legislature, and I was not a big fan of Governor Carter. I thought he was deceitful in his campaign to, to win the, the office. Um, I can't remember who I supported, but I supported someone ex beside him until he won the primary. And I was a big, I was a yellow dog Democrat then, and almost a yellow dog Democrat now. Uh, so I supported him, I think. But I was not pleased with him as a candidate. When he ran for president, I didn't support him. I supported Teddy Kennedy. And I remember flying from Atlanta to New York on the campaign, on the bus full of Georgia convention delegates. I was the only one for Teddy Kennedy with all these people who pledged to J Jimmy Carter. They were very nice to me. You could tell they just hated me. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I, I didn't get along with him. Then he became president. I thought he was a better president than I thought he was a governor. And I think we began to reconcile a bit. And I have to say, he is one of the best ex-presidents we have ever had in this country. And he, he deserves, he deserves a, a lot of applause from all of us for the things he's done. He's just been great at this. He's made a blunder or two every now and then. But uh, he's, uh, you know, he's a man who, who makes the word Christian really sound like it means something. Um, and uh, somebody to be looked up to and, and honored, I think. You made a statement regarding young people and um, the idea that perhaps um, they're not as burdened with some of the issues that us older folk are. And I um, just wanted to let you know about, uh, there's an incident that happened that you may not know about, uh, Santa Monica High School recently, and uh, a young you know, black high school kid was assaulted and uh, it involved a noose. 
And so there's been a lot of conversation regarding that particular incident. But, um, you know, in some people's minds, not really enough people taking a stand against that kind of behavior. So, and when you look at, you know, the killing of Oscar Grant and the killing of Oscar Grant's friend that just happened recently, um, can you speak to the role of the NAACP in really taking a stand on these kinds of issues, uh, whether it's police abuse, the prison industrial complex, those kinds of issues? That's a handful. Uh, thank you. Um, the statements I made about young people are generalities, but I think nonetheless true that I think teenagers and, and college-age young people and people slightly older than that are relatively more free from prejudice and discrimination than was the generation immediately before them and certainly the generation immediately before them. I don't think it means that they're absolutely free of discrimination and prejudice. Uh, they are subject to these ills in the same ways that their parents and grandparents were, but not to the same degree by any means. And when you mention these both celebrated and relatively unknown incidents that seem to pop up all over the United States, not just here in Los Angeles, but all over the United States, they're all, of course, deplorable. They happen in D.C., they happen in Chicago, they happen in Atlanta, they happen everywhere. Um, the thoughtlessness, the cruelty, the criminality, the uh, brutality, uh, these things are just unspeakable. And all of us has a, a, ought to have a commitment to do something about them, and most of all, to speak out about them, to let our voices be heard, and not to imagine that it will be the role of the NAACP to investigate it or to say something about it, although I'm glad that the NAACP often does do that. It ought not be the NAACP's job to do it. It ought to be the job of all of us, all the people in this room, all the people that we know, when we see an evil, when we see a wrong, when we see an injustice, that we ought to do something about it. And certainly, at the very least, we ought to say something about it. Because if we don't, and it happens again, we have only ourselves to blame. Thank you all very much. Julian Bond. <laughs>